Our scripture reading for today comes from Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Uh, let, me, let me pray for us. Lord, would you uh, be our teacher this morning, and would you be with the one who teaches, and with all of us who listen, would you help us to slow down and hear these words? pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin this morning with a quote from the eminent Swiss uh, psychiatrist Carl Jung. Uh, Carl Jung once wrote these words, uh, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own souls. But he also wrote, uh, he who looks inside awakes. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own souls. Is that true? Is that us? Surely not us. Surely we don't do that. Along similar lines, W.H. Auden wrote uh, these words, we would, rather we would rather be ruined than changed. We would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. Now these two great writers, uh, Auden and Jung, who many would consider two of the keenest observers of uh, human nature in the 20th century, uh, they're each saying uh, much the same thing. It's not that people don't change, it's that most people don't want to. So you've often heard, oh, people don't change, people don't change, but Jung and Auden are telling you why. Most people don't change because in the end, most people don't want to. And I wonder if you've learned that yet. And we'd never admit this, of course. If you ask us, most of us would say, well, of course, of course I want to know the truth about myself. Of course I want to be open to that. Of course I want to be open to change. But Jung is saying beneath the conscious surface of our lives, beneath what we're aware of, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing the truth about our own souls. See, much as we applaud it, we don't really want it. <laughs> Change, because change involves loss and loss involves pain. And we are so accustomed to distancing ourselves from our pain, Auden says, well, why? We'd rather be ruined. We'd rather be ruined than be changed. So how do you break out? 
How do you break through? Because we are, we're followers of Jesus Christ. Not all of you, some of you are honest inquirers, uh, but many of you are committed to the calling of following Christ. That means you're committed to change. You're committed uh, to the transformation of your entire life. And yet, Auden and Young are saying this call to follow Christ is in collision with another and deeper desire in your life. That we don't want to face the truth about ourselves. We do not want it. And there's a big part of us that does not want to change. And our resistance is so strong, it's so strong, we will even engage in the language of change. We will rationalize our need to change. We'll talk about it, anything to avoid actually having to do it. So once more, people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own souls. That's the epigraph to one of the best-selling books in America right now, entitled, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, by Lori Gottlieb. So how do we break through? How do we break out of these prisons? How do we, who are so resistant to change, so resistant we don't even see it, we don't even see our efforts to resist it, how do we break out of it? Because it's clear in our passage this morning, the Apostle Paul has, he has changed. Something has happened to him profoundly, his accounting, how he sees his life. This has been completely turned upside down to the point that he says, whatever gain I had, I now count as loss. And I continue to regard as loss everything that I once thought was a gain. Or as we've translated over these weeks, whatever I used to think were my assets, I now see these as my liabilities. In fact, I don't uh, just see them as liabilities. I even find them abhorrent and repulsive. They're like garbage to me. It's quite shocking, but that's the language he uses. All the old things that I used to think were the best things about my life. He says, I look back at those things now that I used to take pride in and the things that I used to fret over. And now he says, I count them. Our translation says, I count them as rubbish. But we noticed last week that the actual word used there is excrement or dung or poop, we'd say today. It's not just that they don't matter to him anymore. He says they're even offensive to him. In order that, the end of verse 8, in order that I may gain Christ. See, all those good things had become rivals to the best thing. Something has happened to change this man, Paul. Even how, even how he names himself, even how he sees himself. He had had a life-changing encounter with Christ. And this was deeply personal for him. He says, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, my Lord, he's my master now and I am his servant. And knowing Christ, Paul says, is worth more than knowing anything else. Knowing Christ is worth more than having anything else. What a change so radically for Paul and what must change for us, for our lives to be changed, is the soil. The soil in which our lives are rooted and from which we continually draw our strength and nourishment and sustenance. The soil. Let me show it to you in the text, and this is very deep. In fact, Moises Silva says, and I think he's right, that these verses you just heard read to you take us to the very heart of the theology of the Apostle Paul. Philippians, uh, three, uh, Philippians 3, verses 7 through 11. 
They take us to the very heart of what Paul calls the gospel, the good news. In fact, uh, to my ear, it's condensed in one verse, Philippians 3, verse 9. And it's actually in the first four words of that verse. Look at them with me. And please underline the phrase, be found in him. Verse 8 ends, in order that I may gain Christ, and verse 9 begins, and be found in him. Doesn't sound like much. Doesn't sound like much, found in him. Uh, I actually wrote a whole book about those three words. What it means to be found in him. And I'm still very much learning what those words mean. Understanding and experiencing the depth of what those words mean. What it means to be found in him. This is the soil. This is the soil of our personal transformation. It's an odd phrase, isn't it? Found. Found implies what? That before we were lost. I once was lost. But now Paul says, I'm found. I'm found with the consequences that all the accounting of my life, everything has changed. What does it mean to be found in Christ? We've said the Bible almost never uses the word Christian. And in fact, that word Christian, that label has become fairly empty, hasn't it? It's fairly empty in our day and age and, and perhaps even a harmful label. You don't find it much in the New Testament. Instead, the phrase the New Testament uses over and over, some 160 plus times, to describe those who have entered into a personal, transforming relationship with Christ is that we are, quote, in Christ. And here we have the preeminent statement of what it means to be in Christ, that we are, quote, found in Christ. That's what it means to become a Christian. If you want the shortest summary in the New Testament of what it means to be a follower of Christ, here it is, Philippians 3, verse 9, these three words. A Christian is someone who is, quote, found in Christ. Here's the very heart of the gospel, and here is the new soil. It's very deep. And I'm lingering over this because I've discovered that most Christians have never internalized this. Never internalize these words, what it means to be found in Christ. It's too deep. It's, I'll even use the word mystical, and we're very un uncomfortable with that, some of us. But it touches the very depth of our self-understanding. To be found in Christ is a way of saying that your life has become spiritually, mystically, and irrevocably united to Jesus Christ. That who you are, if you are in Christ, is you are someone who has been united to Christ. That's who you are. You are united to him in the most intimate way imaginable. Think of the most intimate human relationship, perhaps between a husband and wife. No, it's more intimate than that. It's more intimate than that because that relationship will end. It's more intimate than the best human marriage since our human emissary is, uh, is imperfect and transient while Jesus' uh, intimacy with us is complete. It's perfect and it's eternal. To be found in Christ means that uh, ancient question, who am I, who am I? That you can never ask that question again or understand that question again without reference to these words. I am one who is found in Christ. And to be found in him means that everything, everything that belongs to Jesus' relationship with God now belongs to you if you belong to him. So much so that Jesus says, the Father loves us. 
The Father loves us even as, even as he loves his own son. It's the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 23. That Christ represents us. Christ represents us so thoroughly and so completely in God's eyes that being found in him means whatever is true of Jesus in God's sight is now true of you if you are in Christ. So you may have walked in here this morning feeling unclean, but you are washed and you are clean. You may have walked in feeling very ashamed, but you are accepted. You may feel very inadequate, but you are sufficient in Christ. You may feel broken, but we are whole, complete. You may feel unforgiven, but you are forgiven. You may feel unlovely, and you may feel unloved, but you are loved in Christ. You may feel overwhelmed, but you are more than conquerors. You may feel condemned, but there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Yes, you may feel lost, but we are found, found in Him. You could go further and say every gift, every gift that God gives us, every promise, every spiritual blessing, the Bible puts it, every aspect of our salvation, God's choosing you, God's calling you, God's setting his love on you before you ever knew him, and your eyes being open to that fact and your ability to respond to God. You are being declared forgiven before you ever understood what those words meant. You're being declared a new creation and gradually being transformed, gradually. You're being adopted into God's family. Adoption is the phrase the Bible uses. You're being adopted into this new family and gradually uh, growing up into this new identity. In fact, even your perseverance, all you've gone through, the highs and the lows that have just broken your heart, everything until the day that you will see God face to face and all those you have lost and loved. And on that day, you will be transformed completely into his image. Glory is the Bible's word. Everything, every good gift God gives us is found and can only be found in Christ. And here Paul says, here Paul says that we don't have to wait. You do not have to wait for this inestimable worth or for this priceless privilege. Not that we will be one day found in him, not that we might be, not that someday we could be or that we should be, but you are even now found in him. This is the truest thing about you, that you are no longer lost, but you are found in him. That you, you have today the full Christ. You have the whole Christ and everything he brings with him. Every promise, every spiritual blessing. So completely that your life is now found in him. Is this not the most wonderful good news you've ever heard in your life? 
that Christianity is not, it is not what most people think it is. It is a complete reorientation of your whole way of being in this world. And it changes everything about how you see yourself and how you see others. But it all begins and it all ends in these three words. Philippians 3 verse 9, found in him. If you know Christ, what that means that he first knew you, Oh, there is, then you know there is one person in your life who desires for you more than you could ever desire for yourself, for your life to be transformed, for you to change, for you to grow up into who you are in Christ. This is why Christianity, rightly understood, is so very different from every other religion and every other philosophy of life. I've used the word soil. It has to do with the soil of our identity the soil of our confidence and our security. You could say our ground of being. And it grieves me that most Christians go to church their whole lives and they have never internalized this. Let me show it to you in the text. Keep reading verse 9. Because immediately after Paul writes, found in him, he spells out concretely what this means by contrasting two very different ways of being in this world. And each day and each decision you make you are moving in one direction or the other. In fact, I might as well tell you it's very dangerous for you that you came here this morning. I can tell you that because you're already here. But it's very dangerous that you came here today. Because today is either going to harden you in one direction or it's going to soften and redirect you toward another. But make no mistake, these are two very different ways of going through your life. In fact, the Bible says one is the way of life and the other is the way of death. Look at what Paul says in verse 9, right after found in him. He says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, or you could translate, or through the faithfulness of Christ. The righteousness from God. Where does this come from? It comes from God. And it depends on what? He says that it depends on faith. Now, this is very abstract language, isn't it? It's very doctrinal-ish, very Christian-y, but I assure you, and I'm going to show you in just a moment, this is very concrete and practical. For even though these are not terms we use today, these concepts are very much a part of our daily lives, and they're very much a part of our daily decisions. For we are each interested in being what the Bible calls righteous, or approved, or acceptable. In fact, there seems to be a great fervor today to be in the right or to be seen as right, or to be seen as on the side of what is right. This seems to be very important to each and to all of us. So when Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, he's talking about the soil of his confidence before God and before others. His significance, his security, what's it rooted in? Is it rooted in himself, in his own virtue, his own accomplishments, his own obedience? He's just told you back up in verse 6 that as far as God's law is concerned, he's lived a blameless life. Not at all meaning he's a perfect man, but he's saying, before I knew Jesus, I was a person of sterling reputation and character. But he's come to see now that all of his old accomplishments, even his own virtue, he says, now I see it's become a liability to me. Because those things that were the best thing about me were keeping me from rooting my life in the soil of someone not myself. Not myself. 
Today, I guess we put it, as long as he was trying to find himself. That's a term we use today. I'm just trying to find myself. As long as he was trying to find himself in himself. Paul says, as long as I was trying to do that, find myself through what I had or what I did, I was lost. Because now he sees the righteousness that he was looking for, or again, the word we would use, the approval he was looking for, the verdict he was looking for, well, it could never be achieved in that way. For as he put it in another letter, the letter to the Galatians, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Now, are you hearing the two different ways? Because these are so very real and existential and playing out in our lives today. One is the soil of what we do. The soil of what we do and what we have and what others think of us. And that's the soil, sadly, that most of our lives are rooted in. But the other is the soil of Christ and what he does and what he offers. Every spiritual blessing and what God thinks of us. But if you were found in him, it means you know the ground of your being, the ground of your confidence before God, before others, and before your own mirror is not, is not a verdict that you can give yourself. That's what he means by not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law. I guess in 21st century L.A. terms we'd put it, I'm no longer trying to justify my life by my own performance or by my own estimation. That is no longer the soil in which my life is rooted. But verse 9 reads, that which comes through faith in Christ. He's saying, my self-understanding now comes from someone outside of myself. By faith. By faith. More precious than gold. Now, we're not, thinking, uh, we're not used to thinking of faith as a commodity. We're very interested in commodities, but we're not used to thinking of faith as a commodity or treasure. And yet the Bible, I just quoted it, uh, speaks of faith is more precious than all the gold in the world. Let me put it to you like this. If God came to you tonight, and I mean this quite directly, if God came to you tonight and said, I'll give you a choice. On the one hand, I'll give you $100 million. That's financial security for you and everyone you could ever care about for the rest of your life and their lives. On the one hand, I'll give you $100 million, or I'll give you faith. Even the seed of faith, even, even a grain of faith, Confidence in God's promises in all circumstances. That's what faith is. I'll give you a hundred million dollars or I'll give you faith. One of those choices is so much more valuable than the other. And one will lead to so much more peace and joy than the other ever could. And the one who is awake will say, I'll take faith. I'll take the righteousness from God that depends on faith. No longer depending on yourself, but it says, but it depends. It's from God, and it depends on faith. Now, I know your eyes have glazed over. Your eyes have glazed over. Because if you think all of this sounds just a little too easy, if you say, I think I've heard this sermon before, if you think this, well, who wouldn't take that deal? Well, then let's go back to where this sermon started. People will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own souls. Why, we would, better, we would rather be ruined than be changed. 
we would rather die in our dread than climb the cross of the moment and let our illusions die. See, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, you know what that means? That means accepting the gift of God. That means accepting the grace of God. Or as I pronounced it earlier, you may feel unclean, but you are washed. You may feel ashamed, but you are accepted. You may feel inadequate, but you are sufficient. You may feel unloved and unlovely, but you are loved. Now, who wouldn't take that deal? Who wouldn't take that deal? Most of us. Most of us. We'd rather be ruined. We'd rather be ruined than take that deal. Because to take that deal, please listen to me, to take that deal, you have to let yourself be loved. And there is no greater risk you will ever take. Do you know what I'm talking about? There's no greater risk you'll ever take. Herman Melville wrote in one of his short stories, I prefer not to. And so God, to change you, leads you where you do not want to go. That's what Jesus told Peter. I will lead you in a way you do not want to go. And I believe that's why God has led you into the wilderness that you may be in. What happens when a gifted child finds himself in a wilderness? Belden Lane asks in his new book, Backpacking with the Saints, where he or she is stripped away of any way of proving his or her worth. What happens when there's no audience? Nothing you can achieve. Well, he crumbles. The ego is dismantled. And he concludes, only then is he able to be loved. And that's the point here. The self-centered voice that you've been listening to all of your life has to finally be quieted. That tape you've been listening to all your life that has to be dismantled before a person is ever freely capable of receiving and giving that love. How do you know you got it? Well, if you've got it, you give it. Joseph Campbell says this is what has always characterized what he calls the journey of the hero. And for Joseph Campbell, we're all heroes and that we're all on that journey. And it's heroic because it's harrowing. Because the journey of the transformation of yourself always involves what he called the descent into hell. The descent into hell. Think of, of Frodo Baggins crossing the mountain of Mordor, falling into Shalob's light lair, wrapped in uh, spider silk, left for death. Think of Bill Wilson. Any friends of Bill here? See, he lay in that hospital bed in 1934, having reached rock bottom. In his year-long struggle with alcohol. Well, there's Jonah in the belly of the whale. 
It's what Richard Rohr calls the necessary fall. We must undergo if we would be changed. I like how the poet Rainer Maria Rilke puts it in one of his poems. He compares it to the tree-whipping wind. The tree-whipping wind raging across your life that sucks the world from your senses like withered leaves and all you feel is an immense loneliness. That's what it feels like. That's what the process of shifting soils feels like. Well, you feel like your life is quite literally uprooted, as Paul's was. I mean, look at how much this man changed. He even changed his name. To the point that he could say, whatever was to my gain, I now consider loss. And I continue, I continue, he says, to regard as loss. His whole accounting has changed. As you come to be rerooted in the soil of finding your identity and your confidence and your security in Christ. That's what a life of faith means. Most simply, faith is finding your identity in Christ. You have been uprooted. You have been replanted. And why would you be willing to go through that? Why would you be willing to go through that? Because you have seen the ledger. And you understand the accounting. And you have tasted and you have seen the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And you have seen that his love is not just better than each thing. His love is better than everything. In fact, his love, the psalmist says, is better than life. That's what it means to be found in him. And that's why you want to know him. And that's why you ask for the grace to know him more and more. Or as Cassie just sang so beautifully for it, for us, you can have all the world. You can have all the world. Just give me Jesus. And that's what happens in the wilderness journey. When you're stripped away of all the old ways of proving your worth. Maybe you got a divorce. Or maybe you were divorced. Maybe you lost your job. Maybe you lost a friend. Maybe you lost your family. You feel like you can't do anything right. Like Rilke said, a strong wind is whipping through your life and you feel this immense loneliness. Withered leaves, graying skies, the dead of winter. But you know what comes next. And only then are you capable of freely receiving love. And then you give it. Now you may think I'm taking poetic license with Paul's words here, but I don't think so. I think I'm describing in poetic terms what this feels like to receive the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that we could never earn, that depends on faith. I was lost and I was made to feel it so that I could be found in Him. You say, what's the catch? Well, the catch is people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing the truth about our own souls. We will do anything. But then something happened to you, perhaps. You encountered Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? You encountered Jesus. In that descent in hell, he took you by your hand. And down in that valley, he pronounced over you, you are clean. And you are forgiven and you are accepted. 
And you may feel broken, but you are whole. And you may feel unloved and unlovely, but you are loved. And you might feel lost, but you are found. Oh, and when that penny drops in your life and continues to drop, then you and I can say with Paul, whatever gain I had, I count as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And anything, I mean anything, anything, my best days, anything that tempts me away from rooting my soul completely in Him, I don't even want to get near that. Okay? It's, it's rubbish to me, Paul puts it. I guess a little child would put it, it's poop to me. I find that more effective. I don't even want to get near that. And then you too will say with Paul, Philippians 3, verse 10, oh, that I may know Christ. I prefer the translation, yes, I want to know Christ. I want to know him. I want to know Christ. And we stressed last week that knowing Christ is not intellectual, it's not head knowledge, but this here is a deep relational intimacy that the Bible holds together what we often separate, knowledge and love, that in the Bible to know is to love. So I want to know him is a way of saying, I want to love him who first loved me. And keep reading, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection Meaning, I want to experience in my life more and more the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. I want the power that overcame death to be let loose in my life. Do you want that? Do you want the power that overcame death to be let loose in your life? Of course you want that. Because if the power could overcome death is let loose in your life. That's power to deal with and overcome anything you are facing. I mean, if it could overcome death, that's power to deal with and overcome anything you and I might be facing. Do you want that power? Of course we do. We'd never be anxious or afraid again. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Yes, Lord, we say. But the verse doesn't end there. Then he tells you the way that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. No, Lord, we say. But you see the principle, don't you? If you want the power of the new life to course through your life, if you want the freedom of your life being rooted in this new soil, here is the way. Adversity, loss, upheaval, pain. And we'd rather be ruined. Have you ever noticed how strange the order of this verse is? I mean, we'd expect logically that he'd say, I want, yes, I want to know Christ, even sharing in his sufferings, that I might experience the power of his resurrection, right? That's the logical flow, but Paul reverses it. And I believe the reversal is instructive. That not only that this new life comes, it starts with God originating new life in us, it starts with God. A new life leading to a death of sorts in us, leading to a new life. But more than that, I think he's saying that to know the one, to know him who humbled himself, if we would know Christ, 
if we would draw into intimate communion with him who has united his life with ours, then we must follow in his path. Or as our text puts it at the end of verse 10, becoming like him in his death. Becoming like him in his death. Is it to say, here is the way to experience the power that you want let loose in your life. This is the way. It's, the, it's Jesus' way. Becoming like him in his death. So yes, yes, life brings trials, adversity into the wilderness, the tree whipping wind. But the eyes of faith say this, that God has brought you where you did not want to go. God has brought you into whatever you're going through to heal you and even to heal the consequences of your old decisions. And this changes you. I like how Thomas Akempis put it in The Imitation of Christ. He wrote these words in the 15th century. He says, it is good. It is good for us to have trials and troubles at times. For they often remind us that we are on probation and ought not to hope in any worldly thing. It is good for us sometimes to suffer contradiction and to be misjudged by men. Even though we do well and mean well. But Akempis says, it is good for people to not understand you. It is good to be misunderstood and even misjudged. Akempis continues, these things help us to be humble and shield us from vain glory. When to all outward appearances men give us no credit, when they do not think well of us, then we are more inclined to seek God who sees our hearts. He continues, therefore a man ought to root himself so firmly in God that he will not need the consolations of men. So he's using the same language of our text. Therefore, man ought to root himself, or a woman ought to root herself so firmly in God that he will not need the consolations of men. And then he concludes, when a man of goodwill is afflicted, tempted, and tormented by evil thoughts, he realizes clearly that his greatest need is God, without whom he can do no good. And Akempis is a realist. He says, saddened by his miseries and sufferings, he laments and he prays. He may weary of living longer and even wish for death, that he might be dissolved and be with Jesus Christ. Then he understands fully that perfect security and complete peace cannot be found on earth. Well, then where can it be found? It can only be found in Him. So I end where I began. Do you wish to be changed? Do you wish to be changed? Well, then this is the way. Undertake the risk of being loved, becoming like Him in His death, what can you do today? Well, you can wait. You can wait or you can climb the cross of the moment. You can climb the cross of your moment, let your illusions die. How do you know you're climbing the cross of your moment? It will bring tears to your eyes. 
that's how you know you're dealing with the pain you've been running from. Because if you touch the pain, there'll always be tears. Always. Always. That's how you know you've climbed the cross of your moment. There are tears in your eyes. Then the power of the risen Christ. Then the power of the risen Christ flows in to keep going because we are united to a living Savior, not a dead one. He is with us in our suffering. We share in his sufferings. And verse 11 concludes that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You might hear uncertainty in those words, but this uncertainty is not the goal. The uncertainty is not the goal, it is the path. I do not know, God, what you are doing. I do not know how God will do this. I do not know how long it will take. But I know where God is leading me. And by whatever route, God in his wisdom, or by faith, God in his providence shall ordain. I say to him, yes, Lord, you are my master, and I am your servant. What it will be, I do not know. I only know this. Anything you ask, anything you send, it's worth it to know him and be found. you ask us to lay down. This uprooting is so painful. What you ask us to lay down. Lord, help us to see and to believe that you are worthy of it all. And help us to see and to believe that on the other side of this tree-whipping wind that we'll finally at a place where we can receive what we've been running from. Self-knowledge of who we are. But then to no longer be ashamed in that place, but to be loved in that place. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Lord Jesus, give us the courage to say, yes, Lord, uproot and keep uprooting that I may gain you. Give us faith, Lord. In Jesus' name.